Hello everyone, just a note before we start the interview with Jake Norwood this week. There were some technical issues on my end where I couldn't hear him, but apparently his audio was working just fine. So at various points, you will hear me going like, Jake, where are you, Jake? But you'll hear Jake talking perfectly normally over the top. So sorry about that. This is one of the side effects of doing recordings over the internet, Um, but I trust you'll bear with me. Hello, Sword people. This is Guy Windsor, also known as The Sword Guy, and I'm here today with Jake Norwood. Jake is a founder of the Humor Alliance and its first president. He's one of the organizers and founders of Long Point, one of the most notable uh, United States uh, historical martial arts conventions. He's an internationally known instructor and competitor. Uh, He's been at this for a very long time indeed. So without further ado, Jake, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Guy. Happy to be here. So, Jake, whereabouts in the world are you? So, right now, I'm in uh, I'm in the uh, U.S. Northeast. I, li- I live in New Jersey, uh, work in New York, at least when we're not in the middle of a lockdown. Okay. And so, you're in New Jersey. Who do you train with in New so- Jersey? Are you... Yeah, so right now with my kids, right? Uh, and that's not even a, that's not even a lot to hear exactly, right? No, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I founded a number of clubs, uh, you know, across the U.S. primarily, and um, the most the most recent two of those, Maryland Kunstfestions and and Capital Kunstfestions, are are still alive and buzzing and doing doing really really well. Uh, so you know, when when I fill out event forms, you know, what club are you with? I say I'm I'm you know CKDF in exile. Uh, so, so since moving up here to this area, um, about, about two years ago, uh, I really took a, a hiatus from, from, you know, big clubs and, and a lot of sort of public appearances, focus on my kids, focus on, you know, my, my day job uh, a bit, but, uh, but yeah, I am, am, I am still training and, uh, I, I claim to be part of the, the DC club, the Washington DC club, even though I haven't been there in quite a while. Oh, that's fair enough. I, I've not been to my own school in Helsinki for quite a while now i was supposed to be there in march but the pandemic killed that but you know it's still my even though i am not actually formally connected to it in any way anymore um it's still definitely you know, my club and yeah I it's can home, right yeah I of like. course yeah exactly um okay so i know that you're something of a, a longsword man because i've actually fenced you with a longsword which was a, a joy and a delight at western martial arts workshop some years ago but what are your main research interests uh, so, uh, primarily over the last couple of years, really going back to about 2013, uh, I, I transitioned from, you know, all licked an hour all the time. L- let me back up a little bit further because, and, and you'll understand this because you're, you're from this, you know, you're one of the, you're, you're an old school HEMA guy like me, um, or WMA guy, whatever in that in the old days, we didn't have enough content to focus. So we had to soak up everything we could. Uh, so, you know, uh, you'd, go, you'd be doing Fiore with, uh, with somebody on one weekend. You'd be working through those like five available pages of Ringek. The next weekend, you know, you'd, you'd pick up different weapons and different things. Uh, over time, uh, I, you know, I, I specialized, uh, you know, first into Yoki Meyer and then, and then into sort of the Lichtenauer tradition. And that's, you know, those are areas where I think I have the most depth of, of knowledge and experience. But in the in around 2013 or so, I got really obsessed with this idea of of trying to create a back formation of Gemeinde's Festen, of common 
Germanic fencing from Lichtenauer's okay, yeah. age, right? So, so really, that's been my primary, if we want to say, you know, research area since probably 2013, looking into non-Lichtenauer sources Hello. to try to understand how people who weren't Lichtenauer's students I, fenced Jake, on average, uh, what that might have looked like. So it's brought me deep into... Probably deepest into the the Kölner Feschbuch or Feschregeln, uh, and uh, so that's sorry, sorry, uh, Jake. Jake, yeah. um, we had a slight technical hitch. You went completely silent for uh, about ten seconds. So oh, that's terrible. Go, go, go back to the beginning of the of the common fencing thing. So tell us about that. Yeah, so since about 2013, I've been really uh, obsessed with trying to create this this theoretical construct, this back formation, which is Gemeines Feschen or common fencing. And uh, and so it's not it's not like trying to reconstruct Fiore or Lichtenauer, where you've got a, a set series of um, of, of manuscripts or, or books that you're trying to interpret, but rather it's taking bits and pieces of lots of things, trying to figure out where the commonalities are, and say. Any given fencer you would have run into in Germany in 1498 would know these things. Yeah, uh, and, and these and are the things. A lot of these sources have have um, like they'll say, and a common fencer would do this, but you should do that. Exactly right. right? Um, yeah. Exactly, and so, and which is actually how we started on the project, you know, seven years ago. So that's my primary area of, of, of research and, and sort of obsession on a weapons perspective. Yes, I'm a longsword guy, but uh, I love the Messer. I adore the Messer, and in the last <laughs> in the last couple of years, I've been really working towards becoming a harness fester, an, an armor, you know, an armor fencer, uh, and sure. so that's that's the other. In fact, if anything, most of my HEMA time these days uh, is is really around armored fencing and then a bit of, of common fencing. Okay. And so I imagine for the armored combat, the, the main limiting factor is getting decent armor. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it is. It is. Um, and I think that that distracts people sometimes. Um, you know, I, I fought in, you know, proper non you know non crappy uh armor for the first time i think in in maybe 2015 uh at uh, at, at long point actually i got i got i got to jump into somebody's empty spot at the long point armored tournament that um that uh, uh you know that uh, Jess finley i think was running uh and had a had a brilliant time um did did very well and after words feel so well how did you do well you know you don't you know this is your first time fencing an armor i'm like yeah but i've been practicing the techniques for you know, 15 years. Uh, so, so for people interested in armored fencing, you can and should start practicing the techniques. Now you don't need armor to practice the techniques. Uh, but I'm also absolutely an elitist snob and, uh, <laughs> and, and think that, uh, that if you, if when it's time to get armor, like get, get decent armor, Yeah, you don't have to, you know, drop, you know, 20, $30,000, but, but, you know, get armor that is as close to the real thing as you can manage, um, because it does impact how you move and what you do and it and how you feel. Absolutely. And it really, it really has to fit. And and here's here's a tip: um, you may be able to find like secondhand armor that almost fits you, and that a decent armorer can adjust to fit. And it's not as good as getting it perfectly tailored altogether, but you can actually, you know, as long as, long as you're, you know, you can find armor from somebody who's about your body shape you can get armor secondhand 
and have it adjusted to fit. And that is a lot cheaper than just getting it custom made from scratch. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and, yeah. and nowadays there's, there's a decent enough number of armors that produce relatively affordable kit that you got to go through the same process. You're going to have to tailor it. You know, I look at guys that I, yeah. that I have trained with, uh, guys like Charles Lynn, who, you know, you know, has a, you know, a three quarter Gothic suit that I think he put together for around three grand. And a lot of sweat. Right. Uh, you know, so, I mean, it, it's, it's a huge amount of money, but it's still, you know, it's a lot less than 30 grand. That's right. And, that's and, right. You, and you can do it over <laughs> 10 years. Exactly. Exactly. So, so, uh, but yeah, that's, that's been huge. It's been really transformative for me. It brought a lot of joy back into fencing, uh, which, which, you know, as you know, the longer you do this, it, it's easy to just realize at some point, Hey, I mean, am I still having fun? What do I need yeah. to do to still have fun? Right. And putting on armor always, always, makes sure that you're going to have fun i mean it's there's something yeah. about yeah. about about the, the just clanking when you walk is very satisfying well you know it's it's funny one of the one of the reasons that we all do this whether i think many of us want to admit it or not right one of the reasons that we all do this is there, there's a sense of romance about about sure. swords or about martial arts in general Absolutely. uh you know and and you know, when when you first became a swordsman, that felt pretty cool. Uh, and and later, when you became a competent swordsman, that felt pretty cool. Uh, you know, that first time that you that you actually go out and fence in armor, uh, that feels really cool. Uh, and and let's be honest, a huge you know, I hope that I'm never in an actual to the death sword fight. So I'm not preparing for that, uh, even though I like to pretend that I am because there's a romance there. But, you know, I mean, you know, in guy, we've talked about this before a little bit, but I've mm-hmm. I've seen what real combat looks like. It, Yep. It's, it's really not that much fun. And um, and what's more is that it's not done with swords these days. So I'm I'm okay with training for real combat, but really I'm training to feel something, right? That's a really good point because I think that's true for all of us. But there's, there's something about, even though you know you're never actually going to have an actual duel, training as if you were adds a certain depth to the practice. I think. Well, right. Well, and, and again, it, it impacts your... Your self-assessment, right? Uh, if if you're training to play a game, uh, which is a valid training objective, oh, but, 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 but then that's what you feel like. You feel like you're a sportsman, and some people want to be sportsmen. Uh, but if you but if you're training, you know, with with an idea to there's a thing I'm trying to be, there's a thing I'm trying to step into the shoes of. You wanna you wanna keep your eye on that prize because the only way you're gonna feel like it is if you move in that direction. That's right. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Um, so speaking of training, now we all have things that we know we ought to be doing more of. So what should you be doing in your own training? Based on my current focuses right now, I should be spending a lot more time um, doing like Tabata workouts with uh, a weight vest and uh, and like a, an oxygen restriction mask. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I should be doing. Uh, well, just to simulate armor. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly, right. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's there's certain abuses you don't want to put your body through habitually, right? You got to watch your knees. You know, oh, I spent a lot of yeah. I spent a lot of my life marching around with a hundred pounds of, of gear, so so I got to watch some of those things. But um, I, I am I am a believer that once you hit a certain level of, of physical fitness proficiency, it, it, it pays to start specializing your training um, based on what kind of your goals are. Uh, so so yeah, I mean, to be honest, uh, I haven't. 
uh, because of the pandemic. And, you know, armor is one of those things that that rarely feels like the the effort of getting suited up rarely feels worth the effort when you're all by yourself. And as much as I love fencing my children, neither of them uh, have full suits of steel. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, so, so probably a little bit young for that. So yeah, right. Anyway. Grow it, and that won't that be an expensive, uh, you know, upgrade. <laughs> um, so, so I really should be working on those things that I have when I'm, you know, when you're training a lot in armor, you're inherently training in armor, right? You're training to move yeah. and to feel the weight and to yeah. breathe, you know, and to channel your breathing and so on. Um, yeah. And so those are the things that, that I think are also most perishable. You know, when you look at a lot of, a lot of fundamentals get rusty, but it's hard to say that they're truly perishable. I mean, of course they are eventually, but you know, some things are like riding a bicycle, you know, um, yeah. you know, I, I can recover from, from, you know, months of not doing a thing by doing that thing for three weeks. Uh, sure. But when it comes to, to specialized conditioning for the purposes of your art, lost muscle mass takes a long time to put back on. Um, yeah. Lost speed takes a really long time to put back on. Um, yeah. Gained weight takes a long time to, to strip off. Get off. Uh, <laughs> so, it's so a yeah, lot more fun yeah. putting it on than taking it off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I actually had a, a, this conditioning thing. I, with lockdown and everything, I found that my usual morning workouts were getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And so, I mean, literally one morning I got out of bed and I did a little kind of joint mobility stuff. And uh, I did, I think, four squats and I think two push-ups. Ah, oh, fuck it, that'll do for the day. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I thought, hang on, hang on, hang on. This is not going in a good direction. So I actually started Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 8.15 UK time. I have a training session, which is about 45 minutes of conditioning. Okay. And it's anyone can join and, you know, they can, they can uh, sign in for free or they can pay a little something to, you know, to help keep the lights on. Um, but it means that even if there's just like one person showing up and whether they pay me or not, it doesn't matter. I have to be there and I have to actually get about 45 minutes of decent conditioning done. Right. So isn't, isn't this one of the funny little secrets about being an instructor that, right. that if you don't have if you don't have an audience, you just go to hell like right. you because you, you, like, no, same thing. We uh, at CKDF, we used to I don't know if they still do, but we used to run morning sessions three days a week. I would right. never do a morning session by myself. Never. But but if I know that somebody might show up, I guess I need to be there. Guess I'll do my morning session. And uh, oh, it was huge, right? It was huge. I, yeah. I think it also and underscores that. Sorry, it takes all of the self discipline out of it. You don't, you know, you don't have to make an effort to do the thing. You just have to show up, and that's it. It's like showing up to work. You, know, you just you just have to be there. That's so right. You, and then once you're there, you'll, you'll and, do the thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Great. No, it's, it's, it's huge. Right. And I think this also underscores something that um, I've talked about a lot of times over the years. Um, but there is, there's no substitute for quality as you know, but there is also no substitute for quantity. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, people who want to get good at things have to do those things well, but they have to do those things well, a lot. A lot. Um, yeah. And, you know, when I was when I was a very serious competitor, I was training at least twelve hours a week, uh, and and that's mind blowing for for most people in the community who for whom this is a hobby. And to be honest, for me, it's just a hobby. But um, but I'm also obsessive. So. Um, <laughs> 
you know, but I think that's that's something worth worth thinking about. There was a, you know, on the conditioning topic as well, there was a conversation the other day with a couple of folks um, uh, about, uh, you know, looking at some some older sources. And uh, I don't remember the source at the moment, but um, uh, but that referenced, you know, being able to to march. Uh, 20 miles in, in five hours. Now, of course, what a mile is exactly is, is uh, open to some research still. And what an hour is, is open up to some research, research still. But, you know, the whole, the whole kind of thread around it was like, wow, that's really intense. I don't know if we could do that. That seems too hard. And, and every single person in the, in the military saying, no, that that's the standard a 15 minute mile with, with almost a hundred pounds of gear. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. All you got to do is yeah. do a lot. That's all you got to do. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'd, have, I'd have a son of a bitch with, with a, you know, with a loud voice saying, you know, <laughs> you will do it. Or you, That's right. Or That's right. Consequences. Exactly. You, you absolutely can move your little legs that fast with that much weight for that period of time and still be capable of doing other things at the other end of that of that tunnel. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Marshall Busuke was famous uh, for his physical prowess and he would, you know, do all sorts of extraordinary feats in armor. The most, um, the one that really stands out in my memory at the moment is he apparently could climb hand over hand up a, in full armor, hand over hand up the underside of, of, of a ladder, a siege, right? Yeah. Of a siege ladder. Yeah. yeah. And he, yeah. so basically he's like doing kind of not exactly monkey swings and not exactly pull ups, but he's climbing up a ladder using just his hands hanging underneath a ladder it's like so, so to give you to give you a oh sense of this guy uh yeah. when, when i was in my peak physical condition um which i am absolutely not in anymore but when i was in my peak physical condition i could i could finish up a, a 12 mile march at the speeds we just described right a 15 minute mile wearing boots included uh 100 pounds of gear uh yep. and i could do about three pull-ups after all of that in all of that um, in all of that, too. in all of that, okay. yeah. Now, yeah, okay. could not even imagine doing that now. So I don't want to sound <laughs> more awesome than I am. But, um, but, but, yeah, it's it's it, that kind of thing's absolutely possible. But it takes years of constant conditioning and training. It's not something that you can, you know, just knock out. And I think that's something that's hard for folks that are, you know, myself included, that are essentially weekend warriors. Uh, and we say, wow, that seems like a really difficult task. Maybe it's not reasonable. Maybe the length of an hour was a lot longer. The length of a mile was a lot shorter. And while that's possible that those things are true, none of these tasks are actually that difficult for professional. Well, exactly. Right. Yes. For for a professional soldier, that is, that is what you expect. And it's also worth noting that, you know, back in the day, they didn't have much in the way of computer games and sofas. And so they walked everywhere or rode everywhere. Right. And knights tended to wear their armor pretty much all the time. Well, that's an exaggeration, but you, you know, they wore <laughs> so it a we lot. Seen Excalibur, we know it's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, you, you just, your body adapts to it. And, and also, you know, we have, we have all sorts of other things we could be doing, but your average professional has, you know, think about, think of the amount of time that any professional in any field spends developing the skills for that field. It's, just, it's not actually remarkable that, you know, right, exactly. What, exactly. These, what people were able to do. Um, now you mentioned long point a couple of times. Um, you're well known for being one of its architects. How did that come about? And what, what led you to the insanity of thinking, I'm going to create an enormous event? And, oh, um, poor and what's judgment. it like to put I, it all poor, together? Poor judgment. No. Um, so, <laughs> so no, it, it starts out really simple, right? I moved, I moved into the Washington, D.C. area in, in, in the, the beginning of 
uh, 2009. And um, and I realized that D.C. was fairly unique uh, for most places in that it had several clubs in the area. And some of those clubs were only two or three people. Some of them were fairly large, like Virginia Academy of Fencing, but that there were multiple clubs within very reasonable driving distance of, of Washington, D.C., and I realized that none of these clubs really talked to each other. Like they were aware of each other. They were friendly. There was no hostility, but like they just didn't get together. And one of the one of the advantages that I had had um, being in the the Association for Renaissance Martial Arts back before, you know, I, I bailed um, was this idea that different clubs are actually connected to each other and that you've got sort of a responsibility, not just to your club, but to other clubs. So that was a great thing. I thought maybe I can, I can import some of that. I had just left that aforementioned organization and um, thought maybe I could get some people together. So I, I threw a community center one day, eight hour event and invited all the local clubs and like 30 people came, which is great. I wow, mean, 30 people is actually good. a very decently sized event for 2010. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then that same year, right, that same year, um, uh, you know, Scott Brown and the Western Martial Arts Alliance crowd put together their big international open gathering, which was maybe like, I don't know, 60 people or something. Um, and then it just started to steamroll. The next year, 2011, Long Point got actually named Long Point. It had some very generic name, you know, the year before. We named it Long Point. Uh, we got this idea about like branding, like we should have a name for things, not just an acronym. Yeah. And uh, and and we we added we added a uh, competition to the, to the list and competitions get people excited for, for all of the good and or bad that comes out of competitions. They get, they motivate people. So, so a bunch of people came, I think with the next year it was like 60 and then the next year it was like 110 and then, and it just kept going. It just kept getting bigger and bigger. More people wanted to come. We, we consistently sold out within first within days and the last couple of years we sold out within hours. And then the last two years we sold out within minutes Wow. Um, and, and we weren't trying to do that. We were just trying to accommodate all of the interest. Uh, and then we also realized that we were, um, that we were helping to set HEMA fashion. We were helping to determine HEMA culture. We were helping to, yeah. to, you know, at least in, in the U S and I think there's ripple effects larger than that. And that really kicked into overdrive with the, the video in 2014, that the New York times did. Uh, and, and so we started using long point as a vehicle for that. So, so really, really emphasizing multidisciplinary training, uh, you know, the triathlons and the pentathlons, uh, we started emphasizing things that had previously really been ignored by the competitive side of the historical martial arts community, things like mm -hmm. armor, uh, yeah. th things like, you know, using sharps. Uh, and, and so, so that was really what happened is that, you know, you know, you know, Ben Michaels and I and and uh, and Emma Graf, we we all felt like we had this obligation to use our platform for the good of the community, uh, and we had a brilliant fun time doing it for many many years. And then it just got huge and exhausting, uh, and uh, and we had to take a break. But you know, we we definitely we took that break. I think at the height of our prowess, so to speak. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I know that we, you know, we and other folks often talk about, yeah, you know, when, when are we going to do it again? Um, but ultimately, you know, it, it happened like anything. Uh, it was, it was um, good intentions and um, questionable judgment. Uh, and a lot of luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and if you'd known how much work it was going to be before you started, you probably ne would never have done it. It's just like writing a book. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, uh, no, you're exactly right. 
quick quick question. Um, you mentioned the triathlon and the pentathlon. Just for, for listeners who may not know what those are, what, what are the events that you have? Uh, so they, they shifted a little bit every year, but we started with a triathlon that was um, uh, that was very specifically um, longsword, uh, you know, mm-hmm. competitive longsword, uh, cutting, yeah. uh, cutting with a longsword, yeah. right? Target cutting and wrestling. Uh, and then we, we felt that those okay. were really those kind of fundamental skills that you need to do to say you're not just a, a sportsman, you're a you're a martial artist. Uh, over time, we we expanded that list a little bit. Um, we we made a couple of passes at, at forms competitions um, to mixed results. Some of the, the results, I think, were quite good. Some of the results less so. But it was it was a worthy experiment regardless. Uh, and I still want to find a better way to do it because I think it's valuable. Uh, and then by the time we got to the pentathlon, uh, we actually had a, a series of different pentathlons. The last long point, 2019, you could not enter without joining either a triathlon or a pentathlon. No single events were allowed. Oh, and, wow. and we okay. had, I think, five or six different configurations uh, that you could join. So there was the, there was a Messer triathlon. There was a light pentathlon and a heavy pentathlon. The light pentathlon was, was I think, uh, if I remember correctly, um, longsword competition, Messer competition, cutting, grappling, and uh, maybe forms, right, if I recall. I'm not, yeah. not, not sure. But you said you, said you couldn't enter without – you mean you couldn't enter a competition without entering a pentathlon? Right, exactly. You, so you, you couldn't, you, you you couldn't just show event. up and be like, "Yeah, like I'm a longsword sport fencer. I just do really, I'm really good at like, at, at like playing at longsword." You had to show up and say, "I'm a, I'm a longsword fencer. I can fight with a two handed weapon, with a single handed weapon. I can cut with sharps. I can grapple, uh, and I can, and I can show that I know that I know sort of canon techniques from manuals, and I can interpret." Uh, the heavy was similar, right? It was it was fencing in armor, uh, fencing fencing in both bluff fashion and harness fashion. It was cutting uh, a couple of other things. So so th- the whole idea, right, was to to really say we are pushing this this agenda of being a well rounded martial artist. And if you want to be an elite, uh, you know you know, martial artist in our sphere, that doesn't mean you win the longsword competition. That means you perform well across many disciplines. Excellent. Yeah, because, yes. So well, I guess it's like military training, you know, so you can shoot straight. So what? Can you march? Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So so you, you guys took a rest from long point, um, and then 2020, clearly the whole pandemic thing is just the world going, well, if there's no long point, we might as well just nobody go anywhere. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, this is all your fault, Jake. It's it is, it fault. is, except full responsibility. <laughs> Yeah. Now, obviously, you've been running um, these pentathlons, triathlons, um, competition-based stuff. So what are your thoughts on protective equipment? So training, tournaments, that sort of thing. Ooh. Um, so uh, mixed, right? I, 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 I hate protective equipment for a couple of reasons. Um, I acknowledge the necessity of protective equipment for, for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, and in a few places, I'm glad that we have protective equipment because it allows us to do things we couldn't do otherwise. Right. Um, I, I love fencing in, in full, you know, sort of competitive level gear um, because it allows me to do things that are simply just not safe. Uh, we have the luxury uh, um, and, you know, we have the luxury of, of practicing our techniques at full speed against an uncooperative opponent with minimal, not zero, minimal risk of actually causing injury. That's pretty cool, 
right? That's it's very cool. cool. Uh, and and th- since since about 2011 or 2012, we've been able to do this relatively inexpensively, right? You don't need three thousand dollars worth of gear to do it. You can do it with a few hundred dollars worth of gear, maybe a thousand. You know, but that said, I, I fence in, in protective gear very little. Uh, I, I prefer not to, to use it except where we're genuinely you know, necessary for, for very legitimate safety reasons. Um, you know, because uh, I, I want to feel and I want to learn and I want to play. Uh, so, so to me, protective gear is, is it's part of the triangulation. You know, back in the old days, we talked about, you know, sparring and, and technique drilling and, um, and you know, maybe, maybe cutting or, or, or whatever is a triangulation towards a skill that we're not going to be able to actually use for real. To me, fencing in gear, fencing without gear, uh, fencing with sharp, something I know that, that, that you do as well, um, you know, and fencing with, with blunts and or fetters. Each of these things lets you focus on something that you couldn't focus otherwise. Right. So, exactly. so, so, I, you know, to me, it's like you should do them all. Um, anybody who says, "Oh, I don't do X kind of fencing," I'm like, "Oh, that's disappointing." Um, <laughs> you're, you're, you're missing out because X kind of fencing is great. Um, and and whether somebody says, "Oh, yeah, I, I I never fence without gear," well, that's disappointing. You're going to learn a lot fencing without gear. I never fence uh, with gear. Uh, well, you're also well, missing out on something. <laughs> it's, so. it's the elephant. Yeah, it's the blind man and the elephant. You know, yeah. you, you know, you know, you've got, you've got. If you, if you feel the leg and feel the trunk and feel the ear and feel the tail and feel the, the body, you'll get a better sense of what the elephant is, even though you still can't quite see it. Right. So, so like, if, like you, I, if you're just hanging onto the trunk, going, I know what this is. It's a hose pipe. It's yeah. You're exactly, you're exactly. Missing, yeah, you and, need all these different perspectives. Yeah, and I look at, I look at our. I look at videos of me fencing in a red shirt in like 2007, six, seven, Don't eight. Don't ever look at videos right. of yourself fencing 15 years ago. It is. <laughs> I, 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 if your if your experience is anything like mine, it is a oh. guaranteed route to depression. It's like no, oh. I no. It's it's it's. I tell you, it's 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 something to do for 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 all the for all of your listeners who have been doing this long enough or who haven't yet been doing it long enough. You need to keep doing it just long enough that you can go back and watch cringy old videos of yourself. Uh, yes, but uh, but you know, if I watch the you know. Back then, you know, we didn't fence with gear ever, occasionally a fencing mask, occasionally like lacrosse gloves if we were fencing with padded swords. But otherwise, if we were fencing with wooden swords or steel swords, it was just kind of play, right, With without most of those things. And I learned a lot of really valuable stuff there. But if you watch, you see a, a disproportionate amount of targeting of the legs. You see, a, 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 you see very little... Um, targeting of the head and what targeting of the head there is, is, is for obvious reasons without intent. Uh, and, you know, so what happens is that when folks who grew up training like that suddenly entered into like their first competition in 2011 or 10, um, suddenly they're just their heads are getting just destroyed. And uh, um, but uh, like I'll, I'll give an example. Right. There's a guy who I trained with in that aforementioned organization who definitely was you know, part of the same sort of sort of cycle of training where you learn to defend your legs really, really well. Um, yeah. You know, that guy got hit in the head a lot, but somebody cut at his legs through a guy sling, right? One of those, you know, one-handed slinging shots at his legs. Yeah. And he leapt over it without missing a beat. Wow. Uh, what a cool, what a cool, like, moment. Yeah. Um, 
made possible by a very artificial form of, of fencing that he'd been practicing for years and years and years and years. And and so to me, gear is an artificiality that you have to acknowledge, but that allows you to also acknowledge different artificialities you wouldn't have with it, without it. So, you know, if you don't wear good hand protection, nobody ever targets your hands. You can't protect your hands. Uh, you don't yes. hand protection, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I say you, you, wear, you wear gauntlets so people can hit your hands. Exactly. You wear masks so people can stab you in the face. Exactly, exactly. And then sometimes you train without those things so that you can feel your sword more closely, so that you can feel a little bit of breeze on your face and get that sense of, wow, protecting my head's important. Uh, because yeah. with the mask, you're willing to take a shot in the face, uh, right. which is I, also I, not really good. I have quite a bit of experience of putting sharp swords into people's hands and doing pair drills with them for what is for them the first time doing pair drills with a sharp. Right. And for most people, we, we, we come to some basic crossing and I say, okay, so what would you do from here? It's all very slow, very calm, very, you know, careful. And they freeze because the thing that they would normally do from there, they are unwilling to do from there against a sharp sword wearing a mask, without Correct. wearing a mask. Correct. Right? So they're like, oh, that thing that I rely on is actually more dangerous than I thought it was. I'm exposing myself much more than I thought it was. I, um, I had a, but, the, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you go. There's a there's a technique in the in the Lishnauer tradition um, called the, uh, uh, the 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 Scheitelhauer, the Scheitler, and it's it's a it's a depending on the interpretation, straight down blow from above thrown at a person who's holding their so, sword low. Um, so so I was I was doing a, a HEMA Alliance instructor certification exam um, back in maybe like 2014, I think, and um, and the. The 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 testee, we talked about that, and the testee said, I don't think that works. And I said, show me. So he went into low, and I cut at his head, and uh, and it didn't work, right? He came up, and he snipped me in the hands. I'm like, okay, cool. Now take off your mask. We're going to do it again full speed. Uh, <laughs> he was like, uh, and I'm like, exactly. exactly. <laughs> right. yeah. um, you know, uh, so, so yeah, I think, so to me, gear is, gear is a, it's, it's a tool and we got to view it as a, as a tool. Now, when we look at gear, as far as like, what's good gear, what's bad gear, et cetera, gear, gear does, uh, let's say like three things, right? It lets you be hit. It protects you. Uh, it lets you do things that, um, uh, well, it impacts your movement for better or for worse, yeah. right? Um, and uh, and then the the third thing it does um, is it uh, uh, is it it changes your perception and the perception of the people around you as to what you're doing. So like old, like early 2000s era, like, like mix, you know, Mitch, Ma uh, mix match, like hockey gear uh, yeah, that yeah. we all, that we all fenced in, you know, communicated a certain thing to other people. Uh, we weren't trying to do that. We just needed somebody to protect our hands, but it communicated something. Um, you know, uh, early, early 2000 teens, you know, Hema black communicated something right to people. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, in, in that whole window, right, sort of reenactment style gear communicated something. Mad Max gear communicated something. Um, the the kind of current, you know, a bit sportier, more colorful. It's no longer all Hema Black, but it's sort of that that equipment, you know, within the competitive circles, at least. That communicates something also. I, I think I'm glad that in the last several years, people are trying to communicate through their gear in 
intentional ways. Uh, we don't always agree on what we're trying to communicate, uh, but I think we acknowledge that that we're communicating something with that. And I think that that you know when I'm looking at a piece of gear, I'm thinking about that, which is actually you know back to the armored conversation. Part of the reason that to me expensive armor was worth it. Part of the reason that I. I saved up for years and then bought instead of collecting pieces for years. Uh, and there's pros and cons to both approaches. And I would recommend most people do the, the, you know, mix match until you have what you want approach. Uh, yeah. But I, I went for the, 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 the whole package all at once approach because I had a very specific idea in my head of, of what I needed to look like, what I needed to present myself as in part, because I know a lot of people are looking at me. Um, I don't, I don't, yeah, sure. You know, I don't have the luxury of like doing whatever I want. Um, I have to, whatever I do will be looked at, judged, commented on, and in many cases emulated. Um, and so, uh, and, and for your listeners, I'm not bragging. I'm, I'm, I'm complaining. This is a fact. Yeah. Like, yes. <laughs> like I wish it wasn't true. Um, but, uh, yes, but I, it, I'm in the same yeah. position, you know, what, what I do has consequences. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry. You, you were saying, so you're communicating, what are you communicating through your armor? Oh, uh, you know, well, elitism and snobbery, of course. Um, no, <laughs> what, what I'm what I'm trying to communicate through my armor actually is um, one a sense of history. History is extremely important to me, um, uh, and I'm trying to communicate that history is important to me. Um, the other thing that I'm trying to communicate uh, is your armor should fit what you train, not the other way around. So, so when I sat down with, with Jeff Wasson, my armor, uh, and we talked about what we were going to build, um, I, you know, I said the, the build and construction of this armor has to limit me, hinder me and annoy me in all the ways that it would have hindered and annoyed them because that influenced how they trained. I want my armor to tell me how to train. Uh, and so, you know, so things, so like some certain features I, ha I had put in, um, I intentionally went with um, spalders instead of pauldrons because I wanted some target area. I wanted to have to defend something. Um, I, I went with, um, you know, I went with a, a, a salad that, um, that is locked down like a great bassinet for safety reasons, but, um, but which I fight with a visor up and a you know, perforated plate across the front of the visor uh, because oh, I, I, I am, I am fairly convinced to be honest that you generally speaking would not have entered foot combat in a salad fully closed and down. Uh, uh, if you could, if you had the choice, uh, and then, you know, based on looking at, looking at sources and, and just thinking about my, my own experiences. So, so I made sure that I had equipment that I could fence with my visor up, uh, which one gives me a very large space of, of, you know, target area that I have to account for, but also allows me to see and move and do things that, that they would, that they would want to do. Right. So, so the suit was meant to communicate that. Right. That, um, that that this is my approach. And when you look at and I think you'll understand this as an armored fencer, when you come up to fence another guy uh, in armor and you look you look at his kit and you learn a lot about the person yeah. you're going to fence looking you at the kit. I mean, even yeah. even in BLOSS, right, even in unarmored fencing, uh, I used to joke yeah. that if uh, I in competition, I'd, I'd look at my opponent and if his jacket was a deep, rich, dark black, I knew I was going to mop the floor with him because he was new. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right uh whereas it's that, you know somebody shows up and they've got this like dingy tattered jacket that's like kind of gray where it used to be black and the, the elbows are rubbed yeah. out and like that guy's gonna give me trouble that guy trains a lot um but with armor similar right you see a guy and he's got a he's got a huge great helm that's like a bucket and he's wearing a brig that is like a tube uh and 
you know, and, and like the, the proportions are all off. You say this is somebody who, uh, you know, probably fences in like HMB, right? Or you know, battle nation style battle. So th- they're going to have a certain approach to how they fence. Uh, I'm going to need to take certain safety considerations when fencing that fencer, as opposed to, you know, you see somebody come out and they're in a, this perfect wasp wasted, you know, um, yeah. appropriately light gauged, you know, handcrafted tailored armor. You're gonna be like, one, this guy's like a, a ponce like me. Uh, but two, you're going to say, this is somebody who is interested in coming in a crossing of the blades. They're going to have sword. They're going to do certain things because anybody who's going to dump that kind of money into this is also dumping money into, or it's time rather into training a certain way. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a huge part of it. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, we are heading a little close to time. So let me uh, conclude with a couple of questions that I tend to ask uh, all of my guests. The first one is what is the best idea you've never acted on? Oh, oh, that's a good one. The best idea I have never acted on. Yeah. The best idea I have never acted on um, is a two-week intensive living in barracks, comprehensive like training camp. Not not for beginners, but for intermediate and experienced fencers. Um, you know, uh, uh, an environment where like you get up at six in the morning and you run five miles in your in your curious right, <laughs> and then yeah. you come back and you, you know, uh, I've I've always wanted to do that um, and uh, and have never even sketched out the plan except in my head. Okay, so what what would be the features of this? event be it would be like two weeks in the woods somewhere in yeah barracks, like, like two weeks in the barracks training hall right shoot let's let's do it into coven right uh and uh you know but it would be it would be um you know directed training throughout uh and it wouldn't be workshop seminar style training you know 30 of us all doing the same thing um you know maybe the conditioning would be but but the actual training would be uh you know imagine sort of a a two-week long boxing gym uh with 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 several instructors working through crowds of folks that are working on things they've been told to work on but they're mostly working on their own with some guidance and oversight followed by by fencing lectures discussions and and so on uh we have a a non- two-week version of this, uh, the, the, really with the experience and the training and the lectures that Chittister and I have been talking about putting together uh, really since literally the last day of Longpoint. Um, and I hope we do act on that one. Uh, but one of these days, you know, if, if somebody gives me a million dollars, I'm, I'm buying like, <laughs> the, the, I'm buying the compound and, uh, and, setting up the, and setting up the training program. Okay, well, you know, my, my next question would be, was actually somebody gives you a million dollars, what do you spend it on? And I think we just have the answer to that yeah, already. The dream, man. Spend it on the dream, you know. Um, you know, I, I would – I've thought about this a lot um, in part because uh, in the 2014 video, um, you know, they asked me, you know, what do you need for, for Longpoint? And I said, I said a million dollars to hire staff. <laughs> uh, so, so, so we're not stuck, you know, you know, driving our attendees as volunteers and whatnot. Uh, and – you know, and, and I think for for a competitive event, that's that's still the right answer. Uh, but but for me, in a bigger picture, right, with a million dollars, you know, I'd want to set up a, a permanent facility with, you know, 
a lot of great equipment, uh, training tools, space to train, you know, um, facilities for, for armors and armoring, uh, and to, to, you know, it'd be, it'd be, um, you know, it would be a place to really push the envelope on things that we all dream of doing, but, but real life keeps us from being able to do, um, you know, because yeah. who, who's going to prioritize that over like their kid's college education, right? No, um, hopefully not. Well, I did. <laughs> no, I, I certainly did. I, I, you know, when I moved to Finland in 2001, um, long before I had enough students to justify it from a business perspective, I hired a, I rented 24 seven, a full-time training space just for us. And that was basically absorbing a hundred percent of, um, you know, school dues and training dues and what have you for the first, like, I don't know, months. Um, I'm not quite sure how I actually stay. I think, I think, I think my girlfriend's parents <laughs> fed us. <laughs> I think that's probably, I asked probably how, I, but you know, eventually, you know, class sizes built up and whatever, and it started to pay for itself, or whatever. And then a while later, we moved into a bigger space. And even it's, even, it's not a, it's not a compound with like, you know, outdoor areas and multiple rooms, or whatever. It's basically just a warehouse space, right. that, but it's a warehouse space where nothing happens except training swordsmanship or sometimes having parties where sword people come and we after training we drink beer and chat and what have you so it's it's a sword space and it makes all the difference yeah yeah absolutely absolutely what you what you could do so yeah we did like five day intensives and seven day intensives where people were training you know all day for these five days in a row what have you and it's not it's not a two week 6 a.m to midnight sort of thing because i'm not quite that um hardcore but but you know but, but you're right when you have the space all sorts of things become possible that you right. just can't do if you have to rent the space by the hour or by the day yeah exactly exactly yeah. so so yeah so i think i think that's it right at the end of the day what's what's so important to me about all of this um mm -hmm. Uh, and it's difficult to describe, but everything that I've done right over the, the last couple of years, and again, whether it worked great or didn't or, or pushed the right things or didn't, whatever, has all been trying to achieve a couple of things, right? You know, to me, these are living, breathing martial arts that that or rather that need to be living, breathing martial arts, I, I think I yeah. should say, right? These are things that, especially if we're looking at like, you know, sort of that HMA world, these are generally martial arts that are, that are died, or at least the form that we're trying to resuscitate uh, has been dead or dormant for a long time. And, and so that means people have to have experience. They, they have to perform. They have to have a certain ethos around it. Uh, they, they, they have to have priorities that are that, and this is really important to me, that are not about themselves. Uh, my, my priority in all of this is really this, this dead inanimate thing that that doesn't know who I am and doesn't care, but it's so important to me that that dead inanimate thing be brought back to life and be performed in a way that that does justice and honor to it. Which again is super bizarre, right. given that it's not actually alive and doesn't know that I exist. But but despite that, it's really important to me. And if I look at you know what the last two decades have been in, in terms of life's work. It, it, it is very much in those lines. How do we get living people now to bring to life this thing that used to be? How do we develop functional skill? How do we create the right appreciation for the, for the history behind it? How do we, how do we generate interpretations that aren't complete in other like bull crap? Uh, yep. You know, these things are all important and it's, it's, it's a life's work for hundreds of people at least. Uh, yeah, sure. and, and it needs to be right. 
Absolutely. Yeah. The way I sort of encapsulate it in a sentence is we serve the art. Yeah. So when I'm, when I'm faced with a question, like, do I do this or do I do that? Um, I think, does this serve the art? If yes, do it. If no, don't do it. If neither way, then do it or don't do it. It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. It's a good way of putting it. I like that guy. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Jake, it has been an absolute delight talking to you as always. Um, Thank you for coming on the show and I hope to speak to you again soon. It's been my pleasure, guy. Thanks for inviting me and I'll talk to you again some other time. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Jake Norwood. Remember to go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for the episode show notes and for your free copy of Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. Tune in next week when I'll be talking to Lois Spangler about Spanish rapier, translating documents and many other things. To not miss that, remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And this podcast currently has a five-star rating on the Apple Podcast app, which is very pleasing. If you'd like to add to that, there are currently four ratings and you could be number five. So if you would like to rate the podcast, that would be great. To support the show, you can also go along to patreon.com forward slash the sword guy, where... Patrons get transcriptions of the shows as we get those transcriptions done and advance notice of who I'll be interviewing next and the opportunity to ask questions of those guests. So you suggest a question and I'll pass that along. And I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank my existing patrons and new patrons for your support of the show. It really does make a big difference. So thank you very much and I will see you next week.